It was many years ago, and I was going through a difficult and trying season in life and in ministry in general. A member of my congregation, a very successful businessman, took me out for lunch just to see how I was doing. After discussing what was going on in and around me at that time, my friend looked me in the eye and said, cheer up, Pastor Darren, you're never a complete failure. You can always be used as a bad example. I remember saying, well, thanks a lot. When you think of someone who's a bad example, who comes to your mind? Perhaps you're picturing the face of some famous failure, or you're remembering the story of some legendary loser. Either way, when we think of a bad example, we're thinking of someone who did things the wrong way. When we think of a bad example, we're thinking of someone who showed us how not to live. When we think of a bad example, we're thinking of someone who revealed to us what not to do. Let's face it, we've all been bad examples at some time in our lives, haven't we? I mean, who amongst us can make the claim that they have always done what's right? Who amongst us can make the boast that they have never done what's wrong? Jesus himself illustrated this truth when he came to the rescue of a woman who had been caught in adultery. As her accusers circled around her, prepared to stone her as a punishment for her sin, Jesus made this legendary proposal. He said, okay, gentlemen, you want to stone her? Go ahead. But let's do this in an orderly fashion. I'll tell you what. Let's have the guy who has never sinned be the first one to throw a stone. And one by one, her accusers turned and walked away. Because one by one, they all knew that at some time in their lives, they had all been a bad example. I've been a bad example. You have been a bad example. Did you know the Bible is filled with bad examples? I mean, really bad examples? Now, I've discovered over the years that many people make the same common mistake when they read the Bible. Many people seem to think that if something is in the Bible, that means it's endorsed by God. Many people seem to think that if someone is in the Bible, that means that that person is endorsed by God. This is not true. The Bible is not a record of God-endorsed activities and individuals. The Bible is a record of God's activity and God's interaction with his sin-stained creation. The Bible is a historical record of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today, we're beginning a series where we take a closer look at some ugly people in the Bible. Now, when I say ugly, I'm not talking about how they looked. I'm talking about what they did. So starting today, we're going to look at some really bad biblical examples. Some men and women in the Bible who made some really bad decisions that led to some really bad consequences. Now, why are we doing this? I mean, why don't we just focus upon the good? Why don't we just focus upon Jesus, you might say? Since Jesus is a really good example we can study, why would we focus on some really bad examples? Well, that's a fair question. We're focusing on some really bad examples found in the Bible because that's why they were included in the Bible in the first place. Speaking about some really bad examples from the history of Israel, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So according to Paul, who was one of the greatest leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, The biblical authors wrote down details surrounding some really bad examples so that you and I, centuries later, 
could learn from them. So then, should we focus upon the really good example of Jesus? Absolutely, of course, and we'll be doing that over this series. Does that mean that we should just ignore the really bad examples in the Bible? Absolutely not, because they've been recorded in the Bible for the very purpose of helping us to know what not to do in life. So then, for the next few weeks, we're going to look into the lives and deeds of some shady individuals. For example, next week, we're going to look at the man known as Pontius Pilate. He's the guy who sentenced Jesus to death, even though he knew Jesus was innocent. Then we're going to study the life of the infamous Herod the Great, the man who tried to kill baby Jesus by having all the infant newborn baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered as a way of making sure this baby Messiah was killed. After that, we're going to look into the lives of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They were a married couple who tried to lie to God when it came to some financial dealings in their lives. We're then going to learn about the man known as King Saul, the very first king of Israel, but a man who often treated God's commands as though they were God's suggestions. Today, however, we're beginning by looking into the life of the man known as Judas Iscariot. Now, who was Judas Iscariot? Judas Iscariot was a chosen disciple. Now, remember, Jesus didn't inherit a staff. He didn't inherit apostles or disciples. Jesus handpicked 12 individuals who would follow him and that he would mentor for three years. Judas was one of those handpicked disciples. And it's believed by his name, Judas Iscariot, which likely means Judas, the man from Kerioth, which was a city in the southern part of Israel, that means Judas was likely the only disciple who was not from the north, who was not from Galilee. And Judas was clearly a skilled man because he was appointed the treasurer of Jesus' group. Now, Jesus had a group of many disciples, more than the 12, many others, men and women who followed him, and people would give money to Jesus' ministry, and this was all collected, and they lived out of this common pot. And Judas was in charge of looking after all of this money. Now remember, every one of us is flawed. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So when you think chosen disciple, do not think perfect person. Judas, just like you and me, was an imperfect individual. And from what has been recorded about his life in the Bible, I think it's safe to say that Judas Iscariot was an impulsive man. Now, what do I mean by the term impulsive? I mean that Judas was somewhat unpredictable in his behavior. I mean, Judas could be a bit like an old-fashioned pinball machine. Remember of pinball machines where you, a little ball comes down and you've got the paddles and you knock the ball and it heads up into the machine and it's bing, ding, dang, dong. It's making all these noises and it's bouncing all over the place. It's unpredictable where that ball's going to end up. Well, Judas was a lot like a pinball machine. For example, when tempted by desire, Judas stole. Now, John's ancient biography of Jesus records an event near the end of Jesus' life. John writes, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now let's pause here for a second. To get the context, Lazarus was the man that Jesus had raised from the dead. And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so 
Lazarus, Mary and Martha, hosted dinner in Jesus' honor. I mean, it's the least they could do, right? So Jesus is there at this dinner, and something incredible happens. Let's keep reading. It says, Then Mary, Lazarus' sister, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Again, let's pause there for a second. Nard, or spike nard, was outrageously expensive. It was made from a plant that grows in the Himalayan mountains of northern India, about 3,000 miles to the east. It'd be a good half-year caravan journey. Now, this oil, nard, spike nard, released the soothing and warm aroma of earth and woods. So let's keep reading. So Mary poured this nard on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Judas said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Again, let's pause here for a second. Here's the impulsivity of Judas being exposed. He's chastising Jesus. He's chastising Lazarus. He's chastising Mary and Martha. He knows better than all of them. What are you doing? You're wasting this money. I'm a better steward than you are, Jesus. But keep reading what John writes. John writes, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He used to steal from the money bag. You see, Judas was play acting here. He wasn't upset that the poor were not benefiting from the nerd. He was upset that he wasn't benefiting from the nerd. Judas Iscariot was an impulsive man. When tempted by desire, he stole. But also, when feeling frustrated, Judas became aggressive. We just witnessed one example of this from John's writings, but Matthew gives us another example. For centuries, scholars have discussed the reason why Judas chose to betray Jesus. Since we're not given a definitive reason in the Bible as to Judas's motivation, we're left only to seek to piece together a possible motive for his actions. One of the most popular and I think credible reasons is tied to Judas's impulsive nature. Now remember, People in the first century, their messianic expectations were of a warrior king who was going to come. They were expecting some political ruler, some king to come and rule from the throne in Jerusalem and destroy those dirty Romans and take over Israel and rule from Jerusalem as a warrior king. Those would have been Judas's hopes. Those would have been Judas's expectations for Jesus as the Messiah. But as the three years have moved on, Judas's expectations were becoming dashed. Jesus wasn't fighting like Judas wanted him to fight. Jesus wasn't pushing against the Romans like G Judas wanted Jesus to do. So Judas became growingly frustrated. And when he got frustrated, things were rarely good. So out of impulse, Judas lashed out against Jesus. Matthew's biography of Jesus recorded what Judas did. Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, So what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Here we see two of Judas's impulsive flaws intersecting, his greed and his unpredictability when he's frustrated. So look what happens. The Bible says, So they counted out for him, for Judas, 30 pieces of silver. 
Um, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now, some over the centuries have wondered why Judas would sell Jesus out for such a low price. I mean, 30 pieces of silver doesn't sound like a lot of money. Now, we actually aren't convinced completely of how much 30 pieces of silver was. The Bible doesn't say what kind of coins they were. But since they came from the temple officials, one good guess is that they were what was referred to as the stator. The stator was the most common coin Jews would have used to pay their annual temple tax. And 30 staters would have equaled about 120 denarii, which would have been about a half year's wages in that day. Well, either way, out of impulsivity, fueled by greed and frustration, Judas accepts their offer and he agrees to betray Jesus. Have you ever done something on an impulse? And then, after you cooled down, you began to feel regret as you saw the chaos that your impulsivity unleashed? Be it buyer's remorse or seller's remorse, the remorse is real as the cost of your impulsivity begins to come calling. Well, that appears to be exactly what happened to Judas. Judas agrees to betray Jesus, and he chooses this evening to, as the moment. Jesus heads into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus always went. He commonly went there to pray. And on this evening, he went there after what we now know as the Last Supper. Jesus goes there to pray. Judas slips away and he informs the, the, the temple officials, Jesus will go into Gethsemane, that's where he goes to pray. That's where you can find him. Now keep in mind, this was the time of the Passover holiday. So there were thousands of people in Jerusalem, extra people. And many of them would have been on the Mount of Olives camping because uh, there's not hotels to stay in per se. So they would have been camping there out on the mountain. That's why Judas said, so listen, there'll be a lot of people there. The one I go to and kiss on the cheek, that's the man you need to arrest. Well, Matthew then records what happened next. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. The impulsivity of Judas then took the ultimate toll. When overwhelmed with shame, Judas took his own life. Now let me pause here for a moment and speak to a wound that some listening today may be carrying. A wound that was just triggered by the verse that was just read. Perhaps, like me, someone you know and you love took their own life. I've often heard people say that suicide is the unpardonable sin. Some have even used this passage, this example, as their proof. You need to know that this is not true. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. If Judas is spending his eternity apart from God, it's not because of how Judas died, it's because of how Judas lived. Suicide is a tragic thing, and no two suicides are identical. 
The pathway that one person took may be very different from the pathway that another person took. Some suicides were the product of an outright rebellion and defiance that led to hopelessness and despair. Other suicides were the product of mental illness or deceit or confusion that led to a darkness that engulfed that person. Either way, we leave the individual to the knowledge and the grace of God. Now, when it comes to the circumstances of Judas Iscariot, what we do know is this. He was so overwhelmed with shame from his sin that he took his own life. Now, think about this. Judas was a man who had walked with Jesus for the previous three years. He saw everything, the miracles, the raising people from the dead, the healing. He heard the teaching. He saw Jesus and the purity of Jesus' life. Remember, Judas, when he came to his senses, said, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. This man does not deserve this. And the weight of all that he had just done came crashing down upon him when he faced the consequences of what his impulsivity created, it ultimately destroyed him. Judas, a chosen disciple. Judas, an impulsive man. So what can we learn from his really bad example? Well, that brings us to today's big idea, where we sum up the teaching in one phrase. Here it is. When you are ruled by your impulses, you will be ruined by your impulses. When you're ruled by your impulses, you will be ruined by your impulses. If you're living your life fueled by what you're feeling, you are heading for destruction. So learn the lesson of today's really bad example. When you're ruled by your impulses, you will be ruined by your impulses. If you're living your life dominated by your desires, you're heading for destruction. Learn the lesson of today's really bad example. When you're ruled by your impulses, you will be ruined by your impulses. If you're living your life ruled by revenge, you're heading for destruction. Learn the lesson of today's really bad example. When you're ruled by your impulses, you'll be ruined by your impulses. Well, let's conclude today's really bad example by offering some really good advice. You're listening today and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Darren, I don't want to be ruled by my impulses. So practically speaking, what can I do to avoid the pattern? Well, here are three very quick biblical tips for avoiding the example of Judas Iscariot. Number one, following Christ is seeking to be led by God's spirit, not by your feelings. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, you, as a Christ follower, you're not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, let me explain quickly. When he's talking about the flesh and the spirit, he's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about the flesh, meaning the principle of being ruled by your impulses, the principle of being ruled by your desires. No, we're not ruled by our impulses. We're not ruled by our desires. We're ruled by the indwelling spirit, Paul says, because as a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit dwells within you. So, to be a follower of Jesus is to be indwelt by God's Spirit or led by God's Spirit. That means you're influenced by His Spirit. You're empowered by His Spirit. 
when you practice the presence, meaning when you remind yourself of his presence within you, when you read the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit begins to bubble up from within you. Following Christ is seeking to be led by God's Spirit, not by your feelings. Because when you're ruled by your impulses, you'll be ruined by your impulses. Second quick tip, following Christ is seeking to own your thought process, not ignore your thought process. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, thoughts are actions in rehearsal. The Apostle Paul said, our thoughts matter. He said, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I often like to quote Martin Luther. He once said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. He's talking about our thoughts. He's saying, listen, you can't stop thoughts from coming into your mind, but you can then decide what to do with them once they're in your mind. Own your thoughts. Following Christ is seeking to own your thought process, not ignore your thought process. Because when you're ruled by your impulses, you'll be ruined by your impulses. And this brings us to the third and final quick tip regarding how to avoid following the really bad example of Judas Iscariot. Years ago, as I was studying the Gospels, an interesting insight jumped out to me. It had to do with the similarities between Judas and Peter, and it had to do with the difference between Judas and Peter. Now, the similarities between these two disciples were striking. Both men were chosen by Jesus. Both men were known for their impulsive natures. Both men failed Jesus at a crucial moment. Both men had been informed by Jesus ahead of time that he knew they would fail him. Now, Judas failed Jesus by telling Jesus' enemies where Jesus was. Peter failed Jesus by denying to Jesus' enemies that he even knew who Jesus was. Both Judas and Peter were remorseful after their failures. Remember, after Judas came to his senses and realized what he had done, Matthew recorded that Judas was seized with remorse. After Peter came to his senses and realized what he had done, Luke recorded that Peter, and I quote, went outside and wept bitterly. So the similarities between Judas and Peter are remarkable. It's the difference between these two impulsive men that sets them apart. It's how each one responded to what they did that distinguishes them one from another. From how Jesus speaks to Peter after the resurrection, when Jesus reinstates Peter, it's clear that Peter's previous remorse and weeping led to repentance and confession of his sin. You see, when you read it in the gospel, Jesus meets Peter on the Sea of Galilee and they have a meal together. And that's the time that three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. So Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He reinstates Peter. Peter three times denied Jesus. Jesus three times reinstates Peter. And Jesus' gentleness with Peter shows that Jesus saw Peter's heart was repentant, that he had clearly confessed his sin before God. That brings us to an important question. Could Judas have been reinstated? If Judas had confessed his sin, could he have been reinstated like Peter was? I have no reason to doubt that Judas Iscariot could have been restored. 
It appears, however, that Judas never took the crucial step that's necessary to being restored. Remember, the Bible says, if we confess our sin, except Judas, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sin, except Judas's sin, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, except Judas's unrighteousness. That's not what the Bible says. And that is the third quick tip for today. Following Christ is confessing your sin so you won't be consumed by your sin. It appears that Judas felt overwhelmed by his sin because Judas never confessed his sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It appears Judas never brought his sin to God for the promised forgiveness that awaits us all. If we confess our sin, that means Judas too. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin, including Judas, and purify us from all, all unrighteousness, even betraying Jesus. Are you making the same mistake that Judas made? Are you holding on to your sin? Are you being weighed down by the shame of your failure? Don't follow Judas Iscariot's really bad example. Confess your sin. God is waiting to forgive it and to cleanse you from every stain. Let's pray together. God, you know every one of our hearts. You know what we've done. You know our thoughts. You know our failures. You know all of it. And we acknowledge them before you right now. We acknowledge that we have not lived the lives that you've designed for us to live. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your patience in our lives. We thank you for your forgiving and your cleansing. If you're watching today and you've never taken that step of officially confessing your sin to God, repenting of it, that means turning your back on it, acknowledging it before God and asking Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you. If you've never actually taken that step, pray with me right now. God, I acknowledge my sin. I'm not going to hide it any longer. I'm not going to deny it any longer. I'm not going to run from it any longer. I confess it to you. I agree with you. You already know about it. I'm agreeing with you. I have sinned. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life by your spirit and dwell within me. Cleanse me, empower me, renew me, direct me from this moment forward. Change my life from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, on the screen right now there's a number. Text that number. Now, don't worry. We're not gonna trick you. You're not joining Broadway Church. We're not gonna harass you. One of our staff members will text back in response and offer our help to you in any way we can to help you take the next step in your journey. So thank you for being with us today in this first installment of our Really Bad Example series. I hope you'll join with us next week when we look at the example of Pontius Pilate, a guy who you really don't want to emulate. I hope to see you again next week. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.